I actually encourage people to say, like, sit down and write down, what do you want Tuesday to be? Do you want to be eating dinner as a family? What time are you imagining the kids going to sleep? You know, when are they going to be in school? What are they going to do after school? Because actually, I think we often find in this much busier time of sort of school kids where it's a lot of logistics that we can almost find ourselves doing too much or not exactly having the shape of life that that we hope for. I'm Amy. And I'm Abby. And as women, we are constantly comparing ourselves to others. But your life isn't supposed to look like hers. Being your best self means standing firm in your decisions and always being willing to grow with a purpose. We get vulnerable and real with an honest look into the challenges and triumphs we all face. Every woman listening gets the opportunity to choose what life looks like for herself. Today, we have Emily Oster on the podcast. Emily is an economics professor at Brown University and an incredible author. I became most familiar with Emily while pregnant with Owen and fell in love with her books on pregnancy and parenting. Honestly, I couldn't put them down. And she pairs her experience with research to really help this transition into parenthood go better for families. So Emily, I would love if you started by introducing yourself to our listeners. Hi, Abby and Amy and listeners. Uh, I'm Emily Oster. I am a professor of economics at Brown University. I'm also um, an author of three books about pregnancy and parenting. I also write a newsletter called Parent Data. I do a lot of work on COVID. So, and I'm a mom. So I do a lot of different, a lot of different stuff. Amazing. Emily, my sister and I own a business called Expecting and Empowered, and what we do is we help pregnant women and new moms prepare their bodies, heal their bodies, and strengthen them with our workout guides. I'm a nurse and a doula, and my sister's a physical therapist, and we both share a passion for helping women tackle this season from a physical standpoint because we realized women really needed better. There's so much outdated information that women still get all the time, and it drives us nuts. I'm wondering, what is it for you? Was there a certain experience or situation that made you get into this work, or was it always something that you felt passionate about? No, it definitely wasn't always something I felt passionate about. I don't think I thought at all about being a pregnant person until I was one. And then it was it was sort of like this overwhelming sense of, oh my gosh, this isn't exactly what I thought it would be like. And, and I'm not trying to point to one thing. I think it was a huge amount of advice, which seemed grounded in like nothing or in very, you know, light, light evidence. And I, I, spent so much of my pregnancy really trying to get to the bottom of a lot of the advice and guidance that I was being given. And so sometimes people ask, like, why did you write this book? And the answer is like, almost that I felt like I had to, like, I just sort of like, it just like came out like a vomit. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Like, just like came out. Uh, It just came out because there were so many of those moments of sort of frustration and feeling like I needed some answers and they weren't being provided. Well, there's so much of that. And right when we, we become parents, I feel like as soon as I peed on that pregnancy stick, everyone was all of a sudden flooding me with information on what I should do, what I shouldn't do. And the fact that it's not really grounded in evidence, like, isn't that just so true? And as a first-time mom, I just, I wish I had your books the first time around um, because it would have made that transition into pregnancy and then into parenthood so much easier. And the New York Times lists your book, Expecting Better, as a revelation for curious mothers-to-be whose doctors fail to lay out the pros and cons of that morning latte, 
let alone discuss real science. And even just that morning latte, like just the simplest morning coffee, all of a sudden everyone is throwing their two cents in. So could you provide us with a few examples of things that society in general thinks are true, but we know they aren't based in actual truth? Yeah, so I think we can start with coffee, um, which is, you know, there's a lot of discussion about the idea that you can't have coffee in pregnancy. It's one of the many sort of food and beverage restrictions. Um, and that's really not grounded in evidence. So when you look sort of into the data on the links between coffee and miscarriage, which is the, the central concern there, it really, it seems that that link is really driven by other factors that are different uh, between moms who have coffee and moms and moms who don't in terms of their miscarriage rate. So I think that's kind of the that idea is behind a lot of the, the issues in the data that simply there's correlations, but there isn't causality. And when we talk about you shouldn't do X, we really mean you shouldn't do it because it will cause something bad, not just it's correlated with something. And that's a, that's a really hard thing to dig in in the data. So there's coffee, then there's something like sushi, where again, people are told not to have sushi. But again, when you look into it, there really isn't any reason not to have sushi, the kinds of things that might happen if you had, say, bad sushi are very similar when you're pregnant or not pregnant. You know, you will get a stomach bug and that's really unpleasant. It's, maybe it's more unpleasant when you're pregnant, but it's not especially dangerous for, uh, for the baby. I guess another one that I would pull out is bed rest. So we hear so much, maybe this relates a little bit to the, to the sort of exercise kind of health, health piece of this, that Bed rest is actually very commonly prescribed um, for a lot of pregnancy complications, but there is no evidence that bed rest is a good idea, that bed rest uh, prevents preterm labor or other, other complications. And in fact, it's quite bad. So it's an example of something where it's not only that it's not delivering on, uh, on what you hoped in terms of, of health, but also it is causing muscle atrophy and lost work and all kinds of other complications. So it's like, it's one of those times when I think we say, we like, well, let's just be safe. But actually just lying in bed for four months is not safe. That's not a safer, not a safer option. Uh, and it's hard because we've heard these things over and over. It's like they've been passed down. And I know that something that can happen is that you can ruffle some feathers when you are presenting new information. So this shines pretty bright on the cover of your book where you have compelling statements about drinking safely during pregnancy, why sushi isn't bad, but gardening might be, and as you just mentioned too, debunking the idea of bad rest. How do you deal with when people get upset about these statements? Like, what is it like for you when people disagree loudly? So, I mean, I think... That you know, when I when I research, when I when I write my books, I spend a huge amount of time doing research. I spend a huge amount of time reading papers more than get into the books, right? So when I when you sort of the the key to to kind of writing something like this is that is that I'm kind of using my research skills in the beginning and reading you know hundreds of papers, literally hundreds of papers about say drinking alcohol and pregnancy. And I read all of them and I think about them and I read the meta-analyses and I look at them all together. And then when I go to write, um, you know, when I go to write the book, I talk about exemplar papers. I sort of talk about what the literature looks like. I try to help people understand sort of what is what are the best papers, uh, what is the evidence that's not so good, how can we kind of work through through understanding this. But behind that there's a huge amount of research. 
And so I say that because I think that feeds into some of the, the kind of frustrations that I have when people, when I talk to people who disagree, which are that I'm very happy to have people say, you know, that's not my reading of this. Like, what about this paper? What about this paper? What about these specifics? I'm actually very happy to engage on those questions because I think it's important to talk about, you know, when our reading of a literature differs or when our, our impression about what the data says differs. What I What is more frustrating is that some of those are couched in the kind of like either you're not a doctor, you don't have this credential, or there's some other you know reason why I just want to dismiss this. And I that part I I do find very frustrating because I think we can we can do better if we if we really engage from disparate perspectives on the data, but we have to really engage on the data and not just on the idea that you know there's one kind of expertise that's that's the right kind of expertise to make these sort of judgments. Mm, yes, and it can be so frustrating. But doing the research and doing the right research, just like you said, with all the different forms, it just it, it's going to debunk the myths that we have been telling ourselves for years and bring the real actual data into the forefront. And I'm going to be honest, I breezed through one of your chapters on prenatal screening when reading your book. It wasn't something that we had done with our older two kids, and I was following suit with our third child. So I was reading that book, Expecting Better, while pregnant with Owen. But after we had several soft markers show up on our 20-week anatomy scan for possible chromosomal abnormalities, I, I just I wish I would have read that chapter the first time around before going into that appointment. And there are stats. I heard these stats right when I got into the doctor's office afterwards that there's a 1 in 200 chance that an amniocentesis ends in miscarriage. And for those that don't know what an amniocentesis is, they take a very long needle and they pull some amniotic fluid just outside of the baby in order to figure out further chromosomal abnormalities. So it's a it's an invasive test. And that 1 in 200, that number really scared me. But when you mentioned that that was the same stat given to your own mother back in 1985, like we have to question that. Technology has to have gotten better, but why haven't they updated any of these statistics? So from there, our doctors gave us multiple options. It was really confusing. Everything about the conversations was so confusing and we had to make such a fast decision in that room that I just, I wish I had your work beforehand. I can't say that enough. And you honestly, you speak so well, Emily, on this gap between doctors and patients and that disconnect of information. So how do you help women really prepare themselves so that these hard situations have calm, confident decisions that end up coming from them? Yeah. I mean, I think so that, I'm sorry, that sounds like an incredibly stressful situation. And I, I think in in part, it is the kind of situation that I'm trying to, to help people avoid because I remember these decisions about what kind of prenatal testing to do with my first kid. It was a sort of lower emotional stakes than what you're, what you're describing because it was a sort of routine thing, but it did have this feel of like, we need to make a decision like in the next two days. And I had very little when I came into this sort of very little understanding of what the option set was and how to and how to weigh them. And my doctor had some view, but I couldn't decide whether it was the right view or 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 not. And so I think that part of the book in particular, and there are other pieces of it as well, the value is really to make the the decisions you're going to be faced with something that you're more prepared for. So when you come into those kind of interactions, you both know something more about the data. But also you're just prepared for, okay, here's the menu of options. I've thought in a quieter moment about what they are. Like you really can't, very difficult to make a high stakes, good decision in 20 minutes 
in a meeting where you've gotten some information that presumably is not is not good or at least is is complicated. So I think that's really I mean, it's just like a, a very hard thing to expect people to do. And so in some sense, like the value of this is to say, look, now you're just better prepared for the conversations you're going to have. Okay, a quick break from our partner, which is Gooder. You know that we love Gooder for their sunglasses, but did you know that they also have shoes? I didn't. We got some sent to us right before Amy and I ran a 5K a few weeks ago, and I've been running in them ever since. I'm a person, I don't know about you, but I run in my shoes for way too long. So having this new pair felt like I was running on a cloud and I just, I felt fast. I felt good. I felt confident and I'm just loving this new line. So between the sunglasses that I wear while running and while momming and this awesome new pair of shoes, I am a fan of the Gooder brand and we have been for a long time. So if you want to check out their new line of shoes, head to gooder.com. Again, that's Gooder, G-O-O-D-R.com. And use code HERSELF15 because that'll save you 15% on your entire order. Yeah. Before I was doing this, I was an oncology nurse for six years. And I can remember, you know, a patient getting a diagnosis and it's like they almost go out of body. Like you can't give them the information that they need because they're so overwhelmed emotionally. So it feels like that's the same thing that would happen to a mom that isn't expecting to hear something and having to make a decision. So hopefully with your books and this education, people can at least have that on hand and kind of hopefully slow down when they're having to make these big decisions. And maybe that's part of healthcare that can really be improved is it's like it really doesn't have to be made on the spot. So your book... Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. I know. I was just, I just sort of, the thing that this brings to mind for me is the, the sort of sets of emails I get from people around miscarriage, right? So, so unfortunately, a lot of miscarriage is diagnosed at an ultrasound where, so it's what we call a missed miscarriage, where basically you go in for a routine ultrasound at like, you know, eight or nine weeks and there's no heartbeat. And I think some of what happens then is that there's a sort of immediate, like, okay, you know, you're having a miscarriage, like now you have to decide, do you want to have a medical miscarriage? Do you want to have, you know, do you want to take medication? Do you want to do a DNC? Like, let's make this choice right now in the midst of people processing, like right. uh, something very, something really tragic. And so I think even if you had all the information, you're still not in a position to make that choice in that moment. I think there's really a lot of value just slowing down on some of those things. Yeah. I remember that in my doula training, they were like, a good question to ask when you have to make a big decision is like, does this have to be made right now? Because oftentimes you could go home and think about that before you had to make a decision. And I don't think that medical professionals do a great job of giving that as an option. Like it's just very like, okay, this and then this and then this. So I'm glad we're having this conversation because I feel like a lot of times this isn't brought to the surface. So your book, Expecting Better and Crib Sheet, they're more focused on pregnancy and baby years. While your newest book, The Family Firm, focuses on decision-making in the early school years. Abby and I both have kindergartners this year, so this book is really <laughs> timely for us. Like I perfect, perfect yeah, timing. Yeah, you, you did it on purpose, right? Exactly. I would love if you let us and our listeners know what we could expect from this new book. So I think this, this new book is a little bit different than the other two. So, so the other two books are really like are really data forward. So they're they really sort of begin at chronologically and they and they're really diving into data. 
Um, there's a fair amount of data in the new book as well, uh, largely around things like school and sleep and nutrition and extracurriculars, and social media and the kinds of stuff that come up as our kids age. But there's also a big piece of the book, which is about kind of using this time as an opportunity to shape the sort of cadence of life that you want and to think carefully, think deliberately about, you know, how do you want your life to be organized? What activities do you want to do? And I actually have in there like worksheets to say like, look, you you may want to sit down and write down like, what's your goal as a family? What are the three most important values for you? What do you want your Tuesday to look like? So I actually encourage people to say like, sit down and write down, what do you want Tuesday to be? Do you want to be eating dinner as a family? What time are you imagining the kids going to sleep? You know, when are they going to be in school? What are they going to do after school? Because actually, I think we often find in this much busier time of sort of school kids where it's a lot of logistics that we can almost find ourselves doing too much or not exactly having the shape of life that that we hope for. So some of the book is about decision tools and sort of deliberate life planning tools. And then there's a bunch of data to say, hey, you know, when you're making some of these decisions about, say, what should bedtime be, you probably want to know if sleep is important. And so you're going to want some data on whether sleep is important in order to make that decision. Wow, Emily, I am so excited to read that. My husband and I, to be honest, were kind of knocked off our rocker when Max started kindergarten because we didn't understand quite how like time demanding that that phase of life was going to be. It was new to us to have this backpack to check every night and to have extracurriculars and like this whole new thing. And from my personal experience, I don't know if anyone else relates to this, but I felt like I had so much information, almost maybe too much around pregnancy and baby. But oftentimes as these kids get a little bit older, it feels like not as many people are serving this age of kids and their parents. Yeah, I also think it feels, there's something that's almost harder because it, the decisions feel more important but it feels like if I make the wrong choice now, somehow that's going to be like a like a bigger deal. I don't know if that's really true, but I think it sort of feels like that. Plus, yeah, I think we're we're often kind of we're kind of unprepared for the the busyness and you know for the number of like even very mundane things like the number of birthday parties. You know, like how how can there be so many birthday parties? And do I want to be a person who goes to birthday parties every weekend? Or, you know, am I going to wake up and be like, ah, this weekend I was hoping to just go like hang around, sit in the park and go on a hike. And now I have seven birthday parties. And so I think there, there is a sort of a switch almost in what we're doing every day that deserves to get more, more attention and more kind of deliberate attention. I think the other thing I will say is I think this is a time that a lot of people find themselves in a lot of conflict with their partners because we haven't really talked about some of these things in advance. And because uh, we're facing a lot of new choices, it's almost sort of similar to the first year of life. It's kind of a totally new thing where everyone's busier. And somehow, if we aren't aligned on the things that we think are important, that is a bit of a recipe for conflict. And where Amy and I both have three kids each, we've not figured out, that's not the right word, because we still stumble all the time. But the toddler years, the baby years, the pregnancy we had done that more than once. So now this is our very, very first time in these school years. And yeah, everything from the birthday parties to the soccer practice to checking the homework, I just, I feel lost in between all of them. So Emily, could you go into the four Fs? Because I know that's a really big part of this book, The Family Firm. Yeah, absolutely. So the four Fs, the idea behind the four Fs is to say that, you know, in this kind of phase, there are going to be uh, some big decisions. This is not every day that you face one of these, but you're going to face decisions like, 
you know, what school should my kid go to? You know, what should we do in the summer? The large scale choices like that. And, uh, and that you need a framework for, for making the choices. And so the, the particular framework I've suggested has an easy to remember 4F mnemonic. Um, so the first F is, is to frame the question. So in any of these choices, we want to be very specific, as specific as possible about what the question is about, you know, do I want to do A or B? Not do I want to do A or something else? You really need to say what something else is because you can't choose between an option and a nebulous other. So dial in as much as possible. What's the actual question? What are the options I'm thinking about? Second step uh, is fact find. So when you are making this choice, once you have decided what the question is, go out and get all the information that you need to make the choice. And that means you know both any data. So if you're choosing a school, you maybe want some data about the schools. Maybe you want some data about how important school is. And there's a bunch of that in the book. But you also want to get the facts are also things like, how are we going to make this work? If one of these schools is 45 minutes away, how are we going to actually do that? What is our day going to look like? Who's going to drive them there? What is that going to cut into? What are we not going to be able to do? Really like get all the information you need to think about these, uh, these decisions and try hard. I think this is a tricky thing, but try hard while you're getting that information to not make the decision. So I think sometimes we fall in the trap of at each individual piece of information, sort of letting the decision change in our heads. So they say really separate, get all the information together. And then you get to the third F, which is final decision. Get all your information, get your question, and then sit down explicitly at a time you plan and decide uh, that you're going to decide and say, okay, we're going to come out of this meeting uh, with with a final decision. And then once we've made that decision, we're going to try to move on. We're going to try to implement the decision and not, you know, revisit it again tomorrow morning in the shower. We're going to try to like move forward, except that there's a fourth F, which is follow-up. In a lot of these choices, we have a tendency, I think, to believe that they are forever. That once they have chosen a school, I can never revisit that. That's not true. Almost all of these decisions do have the opportunity to revisit And I think we should plan those opportunities. So we should say, okay, we've made a decision to do this, you know, or do this activity this fall. We're going to, we've made a decision to do travel soccer this fall, but we're going to plan a time in January to sit down and talk about how was that? Do we want to do it again? Is there something we would do differently? I think if we plan that follow-up, we're much more likely to do it. And we're much more likely to be willing to do something different in the future if it didn't work out if we have said explicitly that that is an option, the way you can say that explicitly is by planning to, to follow up there. So those are the four Fs. A quick break from our sponsor, BetterHelm. As Emily talked about in this interview, sometimes there are seasons of motherhood that are harder for us than others. You know, that might happen to you when you have a newborn, maybe toddlerhood is really hard for you, or maybe it's school-aged children. And what can happen is we can start to be really hard on ourselves. This is a great time to work with a professional counselor or therapist to help you work through those feelings. I know, as I've mentioned before, my therapist told me, Amy, 
there's different seasons. You know, some seasons are going to feel better than other seasons. It doesn't mean that you're a bad mom or anything like that. It just means that that particular season is challenging for your personality type. So we love our better health therapists. We strongly believe in taking care of your mental health. If you want to work with a BetterHelp therapist, you can go to betterhelp.com backslash herself and you can get 10% off your first month. Again, that's betterhelp.com backslash herself and you can join the over a million people that are using their awesome services. Yeah, that's really interesting. We just interviewed Eve Rotsky, another author, and she was talking about how we could think about running our families more like corporations in some sense. And for me, you bringing the four Fs into this conversation, that makes sense. It's like we think we don't think to like revisit these things, whereas when we're all at work, of course, we have quarterly reviews, annual reviews. See if things work for your family, and if not, you might have to make an adjustment. Emily, you're a mom yourself. You have two little ones, Penelope and Finn. How has learning things like what we've been talking about in this conversation changed the parent that you are? And I'm really interested in the way that you treat yourself as a mother. That's an interesting question. I mean, I think that, um, that you know, I we try, so my husband and I, you know, try to, like say in the book, parent deliberately to sort of think carefully about uh, about a lot of these choices. I think I've definitely moved towards being more deliberate and more protective of aspects of our sort of schedule as I have like reflected on some of these things. So um, so we definitely do many fewer activities than a lot of other people do. And I've sort of tried to, to hold a line on that, even as the kids have gotten older and have gotten to be more, there are more activities that have come up. So, you know, but I, I mean, I think we always, we always parent uh, like we, have visions of ourselves as a parent that we don't, that we don't always follow through on in the moment. Maybe not you. Um, <laughs> there's ways I would like to be as a parent that I'm, that I'm not always, but I, I will say that one, you know, one piece that I talk a lot about in the book and um, I try hard to implement with the kids is the idea of encouraging independence. Because if I had to sort of highlight, like, what do I think our family mission is? I, it's something in the space of like, we're trying to raise adults you know, we're trying to raise kids who are going to be able to sort of be independent and responsible and, you know, and kind people when they're, when they're older. And for me, a big piece of that is trying as much as possible to give the kids responsibility over things for themselves, whether that's, you know, make their breakfast or whether that's remember their homework um, and to try to do that when they're younger. So we don't have to sort of spring it on them when they're, when they're older. So this is a big piece of what I try to do, I think, in my kind of day-to-day parenting. Yeah, in motherhood, it can change and transform us. And we can think that we're going to be one type of mother and maybe we are with one kid and then we add another or it's a different season or work changes and all of a sudden we need to reinvent ourselves. And sometimes that's becoming a different type of mother or just doing things a little bit differently. Like that is something that I know so many people in our audience are also resonating with. I also think it's really, I was just saying, like, I think for me, one of the things that was really surprising is I kind of, before I had kids, I thought like, okay, when they're babies, like, I'll be there, I'll like want to be there all the time. And like, that'll be really intense. But like by the time they get into school, it's like, it'll be, you know, it'll be a lot easier to, to detach and I'll be able to like into work in various ways and so on. And it's actually almost the opposite. So, you know, I, I liked my kids and their babies. That was like fine. But I, I 
value time with them much more now. So I actually think I spend much more time with my kids now than I did when they were than when they were little, um, which was something that I um, that I hadn't anticipated and has actually caused me to change some things about the way that that I that I do my professional life, but is something I sort of try to recognize. I just I really like them now and I find them more interesting and I feel like I'm other people are less substitutable for me than they were when they were little. So for those listening who are in a tough patch, maybe it's toddlerhood, maybe it's newborn, maybe you're expecting your first child, maybe you are anticipating and wanting to become pregnant. Like if it's so hard right now, know that it can change. It will change most definitely. And it can definitely get easier for a lot of personality types. I feel that too. Like Lucy at age five right now, I am, I could bottle this up right now. I just love every part of this eight. I will say every part. There's definitely parts that aren't, that aren't lovely, but (laughs) so much more than I just, I wasn't in the toddler years. That was really, really hard for me. And there was times where I thought that I didn't like being a mother. And then I realized it's just hard for me. The toddler years are just hard, but knowing now that with Lucy, things are so much easier. I'm like, okay, I can do this parenting thing again. I I can catch my second wind. So I wanted to ask you one more question. I'm a person who loves research. I read 27 books in pregnancy and then still read books with my second and then read your book with my third. So you are definitely the author for me. But where do we draw that line between research and improvising in parenthood? And does this change as our kids get older? I mean, I think it has to change as our kids get older because the research gets less um, gets less clear, right? So, so there's sort of much more when they're younger, where you could at least see that there was there was data, there was sort of research to base your your conclusions on. Um, and then as they get bigger, you just that kind of gets less less available. And also, our kids are so different. So, so much of what we're going to do as as kind of parents of older kids is going to be reactive to your particular kid and, and recognizing that there's so many differences across kids that are that are going to make any given piece of research maybe less, less accessible. But I also think there's like such a huge value here for almost like for our gut, but also like our intuition and also just the sense of like what our kids need. And at a moment, just sort of reflect on, on interactions that sort of didn't go they didn't go like we expected. And I think for me, that's like a big piece of, of how I try to like adapt my parenting is to say, okay, you know, we had this interaction, it wasn't good. And like, what was I doing? What could have happened differently? And, and that almost reflects sort of what does this kid need? And that's not usually driven by, by research, it's usually driven by the realization that like no two kids are the same, right? That like, like the things that worked with the first kid don't really work with the second kid, I find. And that's kind of a good moment for reflection. I've loved so much about this interview. Thank you, Emily. And I want to thank you personally for the work that you do. I know there are hundreds of women listening who also echo that. Emily, when we let our community know that you'd be on, we had message after message come in of how much they've learned from you over the years and are going to learn even more with this new book, The Family Firm. So let our audience know where they can find more of you and maybe any upcoming opportunities that we should be on the lookout for. So uh, you can find more of me, probably the best place is, is the books, but also on my Substack newsletter, which is called Parent Data. And that's also a good place to see, you know, where I'm doing stuff. I do a lot of Q&A on Instagram. So uh, if you follow me on Instagram, it's Prof. Emily Oster. And I do like these weekly Q&As, which I really, I really like. I don't know if other people like them, but I answer a lot of questions in tiny little, tiny little story segments. 
I'm sure people love them and sometimes we have to do what we like. So if you guys exactly. like if you guys like this interview, we would love it if you shared it on Instagram tagging both Prof Emily Oster and also herself podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Bye.